done a real good job of that. So Mark Van Andel is going to come and bring the word of God to us from Nehemiah. Uh, I've known Mark for a little bit over 10 years, and he was literally the second person I called when Betty and I had considered moving down to Detroit. The first was Lisa Johannan. Second was Mark, and I said, hey, can we meet for breakfast? I want to know what I'm getting into before Betty and I decide to move down here. So uh, that's the kind of person Mark is. He had been down here for over 13 years. He moved down before it was cool to live in Detroit. <laughs> and um, I think if, as you guys get to know Mark, if you have a chance, a conversation to uh, have with him, you'll see that he's got a very kindred heart and personality with our own pastor, Leon. Every time I've had an opportunity to have a conversation with Mark, he's kind, gentle, compassionate, a very meek man, and uh, it's going to be my pleasure to introduce him to you. Uh, Mark has worked with Lisa Johannan, and he's also worked with Harvey Carey, and now he's currently the leader over a community of heart uh, home churches sponsored and working through uh, Christian Reformed churches. There's a local Christian Reformed church who holds Mark's ordination papers. He has an MDiv. Um, again, he lives with his wife, Kristen, who's unable to be here, and they have three children. Mark's children have also gone to Charlotte Mason School, and Mark has been on the board for over seven years at Charlotte Mason. So if you guys would, as he's coming up, welcome, welcome Mark. I'd like to pray for him. Thank you, brother. You guys bow your head, we'll pray. Lord Jesus, what an absolute joy to have known Mark for as long as we have. Lord, to see the growth that has occurred into him. And from day one that I've met him, Father God, his absolute kind eyes, his kindness, his gentleness, his love for you, his love for his family, and his love for Detroit. Lord, to see him has worked as hard as he has in all the various places, in all the various ministries, brutally working through an MDiv. Uh, Lord, it's just our pleasure to see him come and bring us the word. Lord, he has prepared himself well. I am confident of that. Will you take that and by the Holy Spirit bring the word, Father God, to fruition as he speaks it, that our hearts might grow, our hearts might be enriched and enlivened, and that our lives might be changed. In Jesus' name, bless Mark as he comes. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you. It's a privilege to be with you this morning and open the Word of God with you. Um, first of all, my son Quentin was at on Gold Camp this week, so thank you to those of you who've hosted that. And I really feel like this church embodies a lot of the similar vision that I have, so I'm honored to be here. And then for <clears throat> Pastor Leon to ask me to preach on Nehemiah, this is like a community developer's dream, like thinking about <laughs> Nehemiah. <clears throat> so it, in the Old Testament... <clears throat> Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of two combined books. It's really one book that they kind of separated, but it's the similar story of people who have been <clears throat> in captivity coming back to their home. And the first thing is Ezra comes and he establishes kind of the priestly functions. Like this is how God's people are to function in the midst of uh, a broken city. But then God appoints Nehemiah then to come and do the community development part the part that is rebuilding the city walls that is just as integral as the priestly duties. So <clears throat> in our world, we sometimes have this distinction between sacred work and secular work, okay? What this means is some people feel like the things that I do or Pastor Leon does as full-time ministers is more important 
than what people do when they go to work for the post office or when they go to work at a <laughs> grocery store or when they go to work on lawn maintenance. And I really feel like the story of Nehemiah here points out the fact that God uses everyone in their positions to do his work to bring his kingdom here on earth. So if you are here and you're thinking, oh, the work that I do is not that important, I pray that the story of Nehemiah, as your church studies through this, and even this morning, that this speaks to you and says, God is using me to bring his kingdom here on earth. Now, if you remember, when Jesus came, Jesus did not say, um, uh, the church is at hand. He didn't say, the church is near. He said, the kingdom of God is near. Now, the kingdom of God includes the church, but it's so big that God's kingdom stretches over the whole world. So this is not something that you can scrunch down into two hours that we spend here on a Sunday, right? This is what you are doing in your everyday work, that you are bringing the kingdom of God to Detroit. And it's virtually impossible for me, now that I've been here in the city for 13 years, to think about the story of Nehemiah without thinking about Detroit, right? I think that's probably why Pastor Leon chose this, was because there's some similarities in terms of the, some of the broken structures and things that we have in this city, and the sense of call that this church has to be a part of what God is doing to rebuild this city. So um, just a couple of introductory notes as I go into this. Um, the Mac Commons is a part of this, right? Mac Commons, it, it's, is it a spiritual place? Well, yes, it is. But is it also just open to the world? Yes. So there's a sense in which you're creating spaces that say the kingdom of God is at hand here on the corner of Mac and Beal. This is the kind of thing that you guys are about already, and I just want to affirm you. I've come here uh, from the Lord to encourage you in that and also to continue to spur you on to lean into that in your lives wherever you're at. Um, so let's start off in the beginning, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Actually, Pastor Leon opened this up last week. If you haven't uh, heard this, go back and listen online. But um, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. All right? So this job, is, it's not a job we have these days. It might be, the closest thing might be secret service to the president in our country, right? Yeah. This is someone who's very close to a person in high position of power. So the king, um, the king has to watch his back. He's the most powerful person in the empire. He's got to watch his back because people are out to get him because they want his power, right? So some people might be tempted to poison the king. So Nehemiah then, as the cupbearer to the king, is the person who makes sure that this drink does not get to the king poisoned. So do you think the king trusts him? Absolutely, he has to, right? If the king doesn't trust the cupbearer, then there's real problems. So you've got the king trusts him wholeheartedly to do this job, this important job. Now, in chapter one, we hear about Nehemiah's sense of, he hears that the city that he uh, loves, the city of his people has been torn down, it's broken down, it's in desperate condition. And his heart is broken and he ends up crying, weeping and praying and fasting before the Lord. Now, uh, chapter two starts and it says it's, we're in the month of Nisan, which uh, when you're just reading it, you're like, okay, it's the month of Nisan. What does that mean? Well, it's been four months of time since that original message that he got. Four months have gone by from his original sense of I'm, I'm broken, I got the message, and now I'm trying to discern what God's leading me to do. Four months is a decent amount of time, right? This isn't like a week later. 
I know somebody's praying about a new job, seeking discerning a new job. Sometimes these things take time to develop, right? So we have to be, there's a sense in which this time has passed and Nehemiah has been waiting. Um, I think sometimes we read the scriptures and we think this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens and we read it like it's like, and you read 80 years of time in one chapter and suddenly you're like, wait a minute, God did all that stuff and what's he doing in my life today? Be patient. The Lord works slowly and develops things over time, right? This, the, the God, God generally works slowly over a period of time. If you need a clue, look at nature, right? God works slowly over time to develop things, to bring fruit to things. So please be patient with the Lord as he's working in your life in the places he's called you to do. So uh, Nehemiah is doing his job. He's right there. It's the, the, the wine is there. He's handing the wine to the king. And he's still brokenhearted about the wall of Jerusalem being in ruins and the gates destroyed by fire. He's still brokenhearted. And the king notices his sadness. So the king is like, why are you sad? You've got sadness of your heart. Now, uh, we don't think about this, but in his job, he was supposed to just be incognito. Like, just do your job. Don't bring anything dangerous to the king. Like, if, you, if, you, if you're having a bad day, don't bring it here, right? The king can take him out for that. Like literally, he could get fired or worse, he could be killed because he's bringing sadness into the king. So uh, it, it has built up in him to such a point where now he can't keep it in. He's been trying to hold it in, but suddenly it's like, no, he can't keep it in. And the king notices that he's sad. And it says, Nehemiah was afraid. It says, Nehemiah was afraid. He did not want to bring sadness to the king's presence. He had tried to hide it, but he couldn't hide it any longer. And the king calls him out. Now here's a turning point. In the story, in Nehemiah's life, it's like, uh, uh, do you know the, the idea of chronos versus kairos? There's these Greek words that have to do with time. And in the New Testament, uh, the, the word chronos means chronological time. Like uh, today at 2 p.m., I'm going to be doing this. But kairos is like this spirit of time. Like there's a moment in time that's like an open door that God has presented. Uh, they use the word kairos when it says, in the fullness of time, then Mary became pregnant with Jesus in the fullness of time. So there's a sense in which there's an open opportunity, an open door. And here's the open door for Nehemiah. The king looks at him and he says, you're sad. Now he's afraid, but he's also like, I think this is my chance. I've been waiting for at least four months, if not longer. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Maybe now is my chance to address this with the king, to bring this up. And I think sometimes in our, in our lives, we can have fear in those moments that seem like maybe God is prompting me to do something. Maybe God is opening a door for me to move into someplace else to do something else. Maybe he's opening an opportunity for me to have a conversation with a family member about him. Like maybe the Lord is doing this. Let's have our ears be attentive to those times when Jesus might be prompting us to do something in our lives. And here's Nehemiah's chance. He's like, this is it. This is the time. He's ready. And this is his response. He says, let the king live forever. Now this is interesting. We'd be like, wow, that's that's an interesting way to start. He's afraid, but he starts by saying, I am your submissive servant. I'm, this is a standard greeting that would be given to the king, but he's restating his allegiance to the king. Lord, uh, king, I am sad, but I want you to live forever. I am serving a Gentile king. He's serving a Gentile king in a land that's not his own. And yet he's saying, long live the king. Now what this speaks to me is a, a submissive spirit to leadership but a trust in a higher authority of God's kingdom. 
So he's submitting to this king, even though this king is not necessarily a godly king, but he's saying, I'm submitting to the king as a product of my submission to the Lord. Now, this is an interesting dynamic because submission in our culture is really a twisted thing, right? People are like, I don't submit to anybody because of abuse, for good reasons, abuse, oppression. These things are reasons why people don't submit. I get that. But it makes us have totally unsubmissive spirits and be like, well, I'm not going to submit to you because you haven't earned this. Well, has the king earned that for Nehemiah? I don't know if he has, but he's, he's choosing to submit because he says, God is the higher power here, and I'm submitted to this king in obedience to God, trusting that God is working through this process to bring about his redemption. So let the king live forever, he says. And then he says this, why should my face not be sad? Why should my face not be sad? The city of my father's graves lies in ruins. He's like, there's a good reason for me to be sad. And I just want to pause here to just say there, lament is a critical part of the Christian journey. We have to be willing to grieve things that are worth grieving. We have to be willing to pause and acknowledge our own brokenness and grieve that. Um, one of the things that I've thought about since I've been in the city of Detroit is I have this, uh, I feel like the Lord's given me this that says, Detroit is a city of grief. There's a lot of reasons to grieve in this city, right? We have systems that have broken down, educational systems, governmental systems, things that have been built that were supposed to serve people are not serving people. Police, all these things can be included in ways that we should grieve because they're not doing their job. The same thing goes with uh, violence. We've got violence in our city that's, like, I don't want to be numb to it, but I went to another funeral last week, right? Like, this... It just happens, and it's a funeral for a young person, right? This is not, the violence is something to grieve. And yet, we just kind of have to keep going on or functioning sometimes. But do we really pause and lament? And I think this is particularly for true for me as an Anglo man. So when I come into a situation, oftentimes I'm like, okay, let's get to work. Let's do it, right? Let's fix this. Let's fix Detroit, right? Let's fix it. And Oftentimes, before you try and fix something, you have to get into it and you have to grieve and lament with it. So I think for those of you who are Anglo folks coming to Detroit for the first time, I would just really encourage you to ponder the grief that's around, to consider that, and to be very slow to fix things yourself, but to be willing to grieve and lament in that. Um, In thinking about Detroit and the stages of grief, there's this uh, book that's been written... uh, by Kubler-Ross and Kessler, and they wrote about these five stages of grief. Listen to this and see if you think this is true about Detroit. Uh, Denial is a stage of grief. Anger is a stage of grief. Bargaining is a stage of grief. Depression is a stage of grief. And then you get to this acceptance as a stage of grief. I don't know if that resonates with you, but when I've looked at the city of Detroit, I've seen people who are in those stages who are processing through, and I feel like Man, our city is grieving. We need to be willing to grieve for those things that are worth grieving. Let's not rush ahead to solutions. Let's be willing to sit and grieve in that. So Nehemiah says, I'm sad, but he's also ready to do something. He is ready to do something. He's been thinking about this. So the king says, well, what are you requesting? What do you want from me? And then it's this beautiful phrase that says, where Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't think he like, got down on his knees and started speaking in tongues in front of the king. I don't think that was it. This is probably more of a breath prayer, like one of those prayers that you pause and you're, you're so 
conscious of the fact that the Lord is with you through your day and you encounter something and you're like, Lord, I need you. Right? You're just like, he probably didn't even speak out loud. He just was like, right? Let's just be, let's be so conscious of God's presence in our days that we're ready to pause and just lean into him and trust him and reach out and say, Lord, we need you right now. Nehemiah is like so conscious. This is the moment, Lord, you've been preparing me for this. I'm ready for this. Lord, I need you. He prays this breath prayer. And then he dives into this action. Now, the beautiful part is he's been thinking for at least four months about what he's going to do. And so he's praying, fasting, and preparing himself. And I want to encourage us. We need to do both action and contemplation, right? Both prayer and action. Some people fall on one side where they're like, oh, we just need to pray about this. And they're always having a prayer meeting, but they're never doing anything. And then you got other people who are out doing everything and so active that they're, they've totally lost trust, tr- touch with the Lord. And they're like, it's like, where's your work connected to a sense of the gospel? Where's your work connected to a sense of God's work? What God is speaking for us to do. So this sense of action and contemplation is so critical for us to be able to get this right. And it reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I think we've got it up on the screen when it's coming. Uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that sound like? You're working your salvation, right? That's a bizarre thought. We're like, no, salvation is something to be received, right? But he says, work it out. Do something, right? But then in the next phrase, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's this weird dynamic where God says, okay, I'm doing the work here. I'm working in you. Now do it. Now you do it, right? I don't have a very good balance of this. I'm trying to get better at this myself, just honestly. But I pray that you guys would be a congregation that says, okay, we are going to pray. We're going to make sure we have time to be with the Lord, to consider his presence, and then we're going to do something. It's both and. We have to be prepared. So Nehemiah is prepared. When the moment comes, he's like, all right, we're going to get after it. So the king says, what are you requesting? And then Nehemiah says, if it pleases you, Then send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Send me to Judah, city of my father's graves. Now, it's interesting here. uh, He doesn't use the word, the city's name, right? He doesn't say Jerusalem. He says like the region, like I'm going to Judah. I'm not going to Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem has some baggage. Jerusalem was a rebellious city that that the nation felt like they had to crush, right? So if he says Jerusalem, it's like a it's like bringing up old baggage. It's really dangerous, in fact. It's politically incorrect for him to use Jerusalem at this point. So he doesn't use Jerusalem. He says, the city of my father's graves, which may elicit some form of compassion from him. Now, I want you to notice this because I think Nehemiah is really shrewd about how he acts, right? He's sad. He's broken. He's ready to go to work. He could just be like, okay, thanks, king. Okay, this is what I'm going to do. Send me back to Jerusalem. I'm going to get my stuff together. I'm going to make this happen right now. No, he's gentle and he's shrewd. He uses wise language around the king so that he doesn't disrupt the whole plan. He's like, I know that this takes time. I'm sad, I'm broken, I'm ready to go, but I'm also like, yes, I'm gonna do this wisely. And the Lord gives him grace to reach out in a beautifully wise way, just to simple say, 
the, gra- the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He's very uh, di- diplomatic about this, which is interesting because later on you'll see that he's not very diplomatic when he deals with Sanballat and Tobiah. He's not, uh, not diplomatic at all. In fact, he's angry and takes quick action. But in this moment, he's saying, yes, I'm going to be diplomatic. So this plan was in place. He was ready, prepared for the opportunity. He's got this balance of praying and waiting on God and then being ready to act. And so my question to you this morning is, what might God be calling you to do? What is God calling you to do that you need to be preparing for so that when it happens, it happens? When it happens, you are ready. Um, You know these uh, bracelets, kids may notice this, the WWJD bracelets, right? It's what would Jesus do? And I think I've heard it explained this, that people are like, okay, if I'm wearing the bracelet, then when it comes time for me to make a decision, then I will look at the bracelet and I'll be like, okay, what would Jesus do right now? And one of my friends says, it should be WWJHBD, which is what would Jesus have been doing? So instead of saying in that moment, I'm suddenly going to make the right decision because I got the bracelet on, what would Jesus have been doing prior to that moment to prepare him for when that moment happens, right? So what are you doing now? God may be calling you and you've got some sense of, oh, I feel like the Lord might be calling me to this. What are you doing now to prepare yourself for that? Nehemiah was prepared, right? When the king says, well, what do you want? You're sad. You, what do you want? Nehemiah's like, here's the plan. This is what I want to do because he's been praying and waiting and he's open for the Lord. It's not like he's like, I think I want to start a business. Yep, I want to start a business. So let me get before some donor, some investor who's going to invest $10,000 in this business, right? And then you've got no business plan. You've got no thought about what this looks like. You've done no research. No, the Lord is saying, let's be diligent about what I'm calling you to do so that when the moment comes, when that Kairos moment comes, you can step into it. Now, interestingly, there's this comment when it says, the king said to me, um, the queen is sitting beside him. So I think it's probably on the next slide. The queen is sitting, why would they include that? Why the parenthetical statement? What's important about the queen being beside him there? Well, I don't know, but I've done some study, and one thing that I was struck by was this happened right after the period of Esther. Do you know the story of Esther from the Old Testament? If you don't, it's a beautiful story. You should go back and read it. It's this picture of a woman who was in a competition to be the queen of Xerxes, which is most likely the father of this Artaxerxes who Nehemiah is with. And she gets into this competition and she ends up becoming queen. And then there's a plot to kill all the Jews. She prays, intervenes, and saves the Lord's people by her action. That story happened just before this story in the same kingdom, in the same, it could be the same palace even. And now here is Nehemiah. And it says the queen is sitting beside him. Now, I don't know what that means exactly, but it seems to me that this is pointing to the fact that God puts people in places in situations so that he can accomplish his purposes. It's not just you at your workplace that's the only believer, the only person there that's trying to do God's work. God has other people positioned there that are going to help influence and and push things in the direction that he wants it to go. So just believe and know that God is saying, there's a bigger purpose here and I'm working in all kinds of different levels that you can't even see to prepare a place so that he can have his, his work accomplished. So uh, the king says, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And then it says, the king, it was pleased, the king was pleased to send him when he had given the time. Now, why do you think the king was so favorable? This is one conversation. 
My sense is that Nehemiah was a good worker. Nehemiah was a trusted, respected worker as he went about his days. And so this, this moment, he had built up enough trust or enough social capital with the king to be able to be given favor to go and do this journey. So what about you in your workplace? Are you working faithfully? The, uh, Colossians 3.23 says this, it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do you do your job as if Jesus is watching you? Do you value the things that you do? Do you work and have enough respect to be able to say, I'm going to work hard at this because I believe that God has called me to this, even if it's washing dishes, right? Do we do that as if it's unto the Lord? And then suddenly when we do that as unto the Lord, then the favor of God opens up and then God says, okay, now I can give you more responsibility. Now I can give you this new opportunity. If we're doing the work of God, oftentimes that opens the door for that with respect for those people who are outside the faith. So Nehemiah gets the blessing to go and then he, he doesn't just stop there. He's like, okay, and a couple more things, okay? I've got the permission to go, but, and a couple more things. I need a letter to the governors to make sure that I have thoroughfare to the people who would threaten me on the way. And then there's this guy, Asaph, who uh, keeps the king's forest. He's the one who deals with the lumber. He's the lumber company. So he says, do this, and uh, I'm going to have, do this so that I can have a house that I can occupy too. He's going to rebuild the city gates, and then he's going to have a house that he can occupy. He's done his homework. He's done his research. He knows what he needs. He's got a plan. He's like laying this out. He's like, let's go do this. Interestingly, he says this house that I shall occupy, he intends to settle in Jerusalem. He intends to settle there. That's going to be a place that he has house. And this is valuable to me, and I think it's valuable to your community. As you're thinking about being an incarnational presence in the Mac Ave area, you're saying, we want to live here. This is a high value for us to live in the community that we are serving in. It's a high value for us to be present here on the ground in the neighborhood, just like Nehemiah wanted to do when he intended to settle there. So then the outcome, what does the king say? It says, the king granted me what I asked for, the good hand of my God, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He has favor. And who does he give glory to? Does he say, I did my work, I did my homework, I know what, what I did all the business planning, I, I remember that Asaph was here, I made these connections. No, he says, the good hand of God was on me. This is only God who does this. Let's not get this twisted. In a world, in a culture that is very self-propagating and that elevates ourselves and says, we are important, do we say, no, God got me this new job or God gave me the grace to be able to do this project or God gave me this. This is the work of God through me that does this. We have to remember to give God all glory through his work in our lives and not forget this. And uh, this is a, another verse that kind of connects with that. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Maybe Nehemiah was thinking on this or would think in this direction. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The Lord directs the king's heart. Do we really believe that? Do we believe that about our elected leaders? We're about to go vote this week. Do we believe that, that God has power to direct people's hearts, to change people's hearts. So the king grants him this uh, 
opportunity to have all that he asks, and he sets out on this journey. And not only does he get the letters of approval and the, temp, the uh, lumber, but he also gets an escort from army officers and horsemen. So he's going down with this crew. He's got this whole group of people that's on this journey together, and they run into opposition immediately. That's what it says. They had Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. They ran into them, <clears throat> and what does it say? It displeased them greatly that someone had, had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They were upset because someone was seeking the welfare of the people of Jerusalem. What's intriguing to me about this, their own political power was probably threatened in this, right? Their regions, they were afraid that this was another battle. But they were upset that someone was seeking the welfare. Now, let's not get it twisted. In our culture today, there are people who benefit from the struggles and challenges of other people. This is systemic injustice that serves some people at the expense of others. All right? We saw this in Detroit in the 50s with realtors who were making mad cash by redlining districts and allowing some people to move places and other people not to move places. They were benefiting by other people's oppressions and limitations. We see it today with private prisons. How can someone get money because someone else is put in jail. Oh, how hideous is that? So why would they want to help people not get in jail? It, it makes them money. There are people who make money off the back of other people's <clears throat> brokenness. And this is sick and twisted, but it's true today just like it was then. So when you read through this book, as you study this book, remember Sanballat and Tobiah are not just old-time people. There are people today that are representatives of this in our culture who benefit off the, <clears throat> the challenges and struggles of other people. So they opposed it, and they <clears throat> did not want anyone else to benefit from the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah keeps going, he presses on, and he goes to assess the wall. Now, uh, he does this assessment at night, right? Did you get that feeling? He's going at night when there's nobody, he can just go with his few people and he can go check things out, get the lay of the land without people knowing what he's doing. Now, he doesn't want the opposition, he doesn't want Sanballat and Tobiah to know what he's doing. So he's trying to keep away from them, but he's also trying to not tell, it says, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He didn't tell people, right? He didn't stroll in town and go, hey, look, look at me. I'm about to do something big. Get on board. Come behind me. That's not, that wasn't his approach. He comes in at night and he's checking things out. He's checking things out and uh, there's a little bug that was right on the ground there, so... That's what was distracting us, sorry, ADD here. But uh, he goes at night, and he doesn't tell even the people that he's around. Now, again, this is in our culture, this is not it. We would go and we'd be like tweeting, like, hey, I'm about to do something great. Please follow me, come do my thing with me, right? He's like, no, 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 I have to lay out, survey the land. He probably did that with wisdom, because some people can't handle knowing the full plan. They will get afraid or discouraged or they will quit early. He had to get things in place. He had to know things. And so he had this planning process and he doesn't let everybody in on this process. He's like, I'm going to get my feet on the ground. But his goal 
Get this really clearly. His goal was that the people who were already there were going to rebuild the city with him. He was not coming in like the latest, greatest, new person to come in and do it himself. He knew he needed the people on the ground and he wanted to see them rebuild the city with him. This was not about Nehemiah. This was about God's people being restored, their dignity, their pride, their sense of security being restored. They're those people who were threatened by these outside forces who were feeling so vulnerable. He wanted them to be able to say, we rebuilt the city. We did this. That was his goal. That reminds me so much of this great city. I'm not from Detroit originally. 13 years does not give me enough street cred to be able to say that I should be the one leading the charge here. But I want to be part of something, but I want the people of Detroit to rebuild Detroit. I want to be part of it. I want to be along for the ride, but I don't want it to be about Mark Van Andel, right? How twisted would that be? This is about the pe- God's people doing what he's doing here. And you know what's beautiful? This is not the only place in scripture that it speaks to this. If you read Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 61, the first four verses, I'm going to close on this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the, go- the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Who's doing the rebuilding? The people who are there. That's what the the Spirit of the Lord is on us to be able to do this kind of work. And it's on you to do this work here in the MacAv area. That's what your church is here for. It's to rebuild the ancient ruins, but, but to have people here locally doing that. And how do you know that this is important? Because this was Jesus' first sermon. When he went to uh, Nazareth, he stands up in the synagogue and they hand him the text and he reads it. And it's this, this chapter from Isaiah. This is the mission statement of Jesus. He's saying, this is me. This is what I've been sent to do. And this is you. This is what you've been sent to do here at MacAv too. You've been sent to bind up the brokenhearted to mourn, to comfort those who are mourning. And then to equip the people who are in this neighborhood to rebuild the city walls, to rebuild the city so that this long devastated city can rise again from the ashes with beauty because the spirit of the Lord is here. And then may the Lord get the glory, not about us, may the Lord get the glory for what he does in Detroit. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now for this community of people. Um, they're going through transitions, Lord, and you have brought them this far and you are not leaving them. You've called them to this mission of extending the kingdom of God in this neighborhood for your glory so that your name would be made great. So Lord, would you encourage them in that right now? Would you use the story of Nehemiah to build them up in the places that you've called them to? Would you speak clearly to them about what their next steps are and how they are to proceed 
Lord, would you give them grace to wait and be patient when they need to do that? To wait on you, but also to plan and prepare. And Lord, would we be able to give you so much glory when we continue to see your hand of guidance in leading the restoration of this great city of Detroit. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.